you read this passage, and uh, again, you might be asking, like, Joe, why? Why are we reading Isaiah 53? Because Christmas time is a happy time. Christmas time is a joyful time. So why are we reading about this dude being crushed, being pierced, bleeding out? Why are we reading such, like, heavy, dark, sad scripture? We should be saving that for Good Friday, like the, like the sad times, you know? Like, it's, why can't we just be happy right now? Why can't we just think about the joyful things that Christmas brings? And here is my uh, admonition to you that joy... For joy's sake is a dead joy. Joy for the sake of being joyful is dead. There is no weight to it. There is no eternality to its character, no substance to undergird the reason and the hope for the joy that is in you. All right? If you say, oh, you know, you can't, it's the same thing as uh, going up to a depressed person and just being like, hey, smile. That doesn't work. Why does that not work? Because there's no underlying reason. There's no underlying hope for that person. Just as we cannot force anyone to be happy, be joyful, in this time, in this Christmas time, we cannot just inject what we think of as joy into Christmas time without there being an underlying foundation to that joy. Right? Joy for joy's sake is like putting makeup on a dead pig. It's like using Axe body spray in a middle school boy's locker room. It's not going to work. If anything, it makes your conception of joy worse. That's why we see all those um, stories and social media posts about the people who are really depressed in this holiday season. Everyone, everyone around me is so happy, so joyful. Why not me? And so this Christmas, this Christmas, I gave you, we want to experience and know a joy that is deep. We want to know a joy that is real, a joy that is strong, a joy that is true. So what we need then in this Christmas time, in this third week of Advent, as we approach the Incarnation, we do not need joy, simply, but we need hopeful joy. We need a joy that is undergirded, founded upon, strengthened by eternal hope. Because hopeful joy reaches beyond the superficiality of a present, fleeting experience and reaches into the deep treasures of the gospel in eternity past and eternity future. True gospel, hopeful joy is not merely an experience and a feeling we have in the present, but it is eternal because it is grounded in the gospel. And true joy, therefore, again, is a hopeful joy because true joy is a product of hope. True joy is a product of hope. And the reason why we read Isaiah 53 today is because hope is a product of suffering. True joy is a product of hope, and hope is a product of suffering. Romans 5.3, Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings. 
There's joy, there's suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. True joy is a product of hope, and hope is a product of suffering, not only in us, but as we will see, Christmas is a joyful time, precisely because it marks the beginning of the particular and messianic suffering and humiliation of Jesus Christ. Go away, Flat. You see, when Isaiah prophesied of this coming Messiah, He spoke of one, yes, who would come in victory and glory. But he spoke also very specifically of one who would come as a suffering servant. And Isaiah 53 is that key text, is it not? He spoke of, he prophesied of the one who would come as a suffering servant. We celebrate Christmas Day, the incarnation of the God-man. We celebrate it with joy and with jubilation. Precisely because of the suffering and humiliation of the Christ. Because it is through the suffering and humiliation of the Christ that the people of God are redeemed. It is through the humiliation of the Christ that we are saved and secured in him. It is through his humiliation that we are blessed and born again. Simply put, we are saved through suffering. The suffering of Christ is the means by which we have procured our salvation. And indeed, this is the meaning of Christmas joy. That our suffering in this life, in this final season, our suffering is but a shadow of Christ's suffering. And therefore, our rejoicing is but a foretaste of the joy to come. Our suffering, as great, it is, as great as it is, is merely a shadow of Christ's suffering. And the joy that we experience from knowing the gospel of Christ, that joy is but a, is but a Costco sample of the joy to come. And so, let us consider uh, Jesus' humiliation in life. Because Jesus' humiliation in his life gives us hope for humiliation in our life. Jesus' suffering in his life gives us hope for suffering in our life. In verse 2, we read that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What is going on? Um, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We often think of Christ's suffering and Christ's humiliation as beginning on Good Friday, where they arrested him and beat him. And yes, that was a day of suffering, but his humiliation did not begin on Good Friday, but it began even before Christmas Day. And as we remember that Christmas story, we remember that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who should have been seated at the grandest of tables and placed among the richest of riches, This man was placed in a manger, a trough for feeding animals. Why? Why did they put him in there? Because there was no room for him 
and his family at the inn. And as we consider the audacity of that, would any inn, would any hotel ever reject or deny a room for a president, for a king, for a queen? And yet the king of kings and the Lord of lords was rejected from the very beginning. And as he grows up into adulthood, and as he's calling his disciples, his hometown is insulted by the very disciples he called. In John 1.45, Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Crestville, New Jersey? Yes, me. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Speaking lowly of Jesus' hometown. And yet, when he goes back to this hometown, his hometown tries to kill him. Luke 4, 28, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they can throw him down the cliff. His hometown, the place where he grew up. That's why Jesus says in Luke 9, foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we read throughout the Gospels of the humiliation that Jesus experienced um, time and time again in his ministry. As people question his miracles and his preaching, as the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, rouse up the people of Jerusalem eventually to have him killed. Because Jesus Christ came to us on Christmas Day. Not only to die, but to live. And to live the life that we could not in order that we would have life in Him. Jesus Christ came not only to die, but to live. You might hear this phrase thrown around, like, God will never give you anything that you can't handle, or some BS to that effect, right? Um, But no, Jesus came precisely because we cannot handle it. Jesus came precisely because we cannot handle this life that we have been given. We cannot, we cannot handle the expectations that are placed on us. We cannot, we cannot handle the requirements that are required of us, not only to God, but even to each other. How many times have you been let down by someone who you called a friend, family? How many times have you let yourself down? We cannot even live up to our own expectations, and yet we are called as God's people to live up to God's expectations and requirements, and we fall way short, Romans 3.23, right? But Jesus came to live the life that we could not. Jesus came to be the second and greater Adam, to fulfill the requirements of the law in perfect obedience in a way that the first Adam could not. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It is because Jesus Christ has lived in perfect obedience and in perfect faultlessness and in pure righteousness. It is precisely because he has lived the life that we could not live that he was rendered worthy to be our spotless, sacrificial lamb. And that is why Isaiah says in 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth in perfect, quiet obedience to the Father, to the requirements that were required of him as our lamb. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and asked for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And so because Jesus has lived the life that we could not live, he has been the righteousness that we could not achieve. He has been the obedience that we could not do. His obedience has become our obedience. And his righteousness has become our righteousness. And therefore, when we stand before the presence of God, Though the remnant of sin remains in us, though the remnant of that disobedience and the remnant of that unrighteousness does remain in us, when we stand before the presence of God and before the presence of men, it is not our disobedience and our unrighteousness that is that covers us. Rather, it is the righteousness, obedience, faultlessness, spotlessness of Christ that covers us. And therefore, we have hope when we endure Humiliation, suffering, struggles, and pains of all kinds, but especially the kind that we endure for the sake of the gospel. Because we live in a world that continues and increases in its open hostility towards God, Romans 1. And so, when we say, as followers of Christ, uh, when we experience these trials, tribulations, sufferings, and pains, specifically when we embrace our identity as children of God, we must remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised when your faith comes under attack, when the things that you believe and that has been revealed to you comes under questioning, and not just questioning, but hostile questioning. Um, You know, Esther Cho, she was telling us about a show in the Yams chat um, where, uh, I don't know the details of the show, maybe she can tell you about it after service, but this this is a pretty common theme, uh, I think, in our modern day, where a man murdered the son of this family, and a few months later, the mother and father come up to him, and they forgive him, because of their deep love of God, and their understanding of who God is, and what God has done for them. And I've actually spoken to my wife, Esther, not Esther, my wife, Esther, about uh, what, what I would do to the person who would hurt my daughter. Uh, and she was like, don't, she was like literally getting scared about the things that were coming out of me. And yet, as much as we uh, understand what, what, what's my point with this? And yet God, <coughs> oh wait, no, I'm going to rewind. <laughs> But that is, that is the Christian ethic, isn't it? That's the Christian... Um, that's just what happens when you come to know the love of God. 
that even, even though we still, feel, we still feel those human feelings of rage and fury and anger, that because we have the knowledge of God, we can say to the one who has killed even our son, I forgive you. And why can we do that? How can we do that? Because God looks at us, the ones who has killed his son. God knows what it's like to forgive a son killer. And therefore he turns to us, he says, I forgive you. And not only do I forgive you, but I will clothe you in robes of righteousness and obedience and glory and joy. Why does he do that? I don't know. But does in his mysterious grace. Uh, all that to say, the world, when they see stuff like that, right? When they see Christians forgiving the ones who have killed their sons, when they, when they see Christians treating, uh, treating people who have done heinous things and forgive them, and not only forgive them, but lavish them with love and grace and mercy, the world's like WTF. This person does not deserve your love. This person, this person only deserves condemnation and judgment and ostracization, banishment. What are you doing with that person? I'm sure an example will come to your mind of the type of people that we are called to forgive, that we are called to embrace just as God has embraced us. And the world finds that offensive. Right? Um, Anyway, so don't be surprised when the world comes to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If we are united to Christ in his joy, then we are united to him also in his suffering and vice versa. If we are one with Christ in his glory, then we are one with Christ in his humiliation. And so, let it be a great joy for us to hold fast to our confession of our true love, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself of his own glory in order that he would live the life of the suffering servant for our sake. He lived a life that we could not live so that we would have life in him. So that's what Jesus' suffering in life gives us hope for in this life. Uh, but Jesus' suffering in death, and this is my second and last point, Jesus' suffering in death gives us hope in the death of our sin and the age to come. Jesus' suffering in death gives us hope in the death of our sin and the age to come. You see, uh, of course, Jesus came to live and live the life that we could not, but ultimately, of course, the life of Jesus finds its ultimate purpose in Jesus' death. And it is true through the death of Christ that we find our ultimate joy. Verse 4 of our passage, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has borne and carried our griefs 
and our sorrows to the cross. Why are we grieving? Why are we sorrowful? Why did he need to carry that? Well, we are sorrowful, or we should be sorrowful, because we have sinned against God himself. We have sinned against God himself. And for all the talk of justice in this world today, true justice would be for God to obliterate all those who sin against him, a.k.a. everybody. Yet, by common grace, God has spared all from immediate destruction. And by a specific grace, he has elected some to salvation. And though we turn from the will of God, it was the will of God to turn us back to him. And he would do this through the cross. Indeed, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, verse 10. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord. The will of the Lord was not to crush us as we deserved. The will of the Lord was not to annihilate us as we deserved. But what was the will of God? What was the will of the Lord? It was to crush his only begotten son. His will was to crush Jesus. Because Jesus was the only one worthy to redeem and save. He was the only offering that we could give. And we couldn't give it. He was the only offering worthy to redeem and save God's people. Jesus came to pay the ultimate price. The price of knowing. The crushing of the Lord. To know the piercing of those nails in his hands and feet. He has paid that price. And so, if God has paid such a price, if he has paid the price of his son upon the cross to destroy the power of sin in our lives, in your lives and mine, then why do we run back to our sin? Why do we run back to our sin like dogs returning to their vomit? Romans 8.3, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here is our hope. Here is the hope that sustains and sustains our joy. Though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Though we were enemies of God, Christ was born on Christmas Day, not to the riches that he deserved, but to a life of humiliation, living a perfect and obedient life, so that when he did die on that cross, he was an offering and sacrifice worthy to cover the sin in our hearts, to cover the sins of all of mankind. <clears throat> and so, though at one time we were obligated and slaves to sin, we know that through the gospel of the Christ who came on that Christmas day and died on that Good Friday and was raised to life on Easter Sunday, we have no obligation to our sin any longer. We are freed from the shackles of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, but rather now we are free in Christ because we were bought with a price, the price of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so... 
That is our joy. Our joy is not an empty, vacuous, superficial joy. Happy just because we're supposed to be happy, you know, in those 30 days after Thanksgiving. But rather, our joy is one that is undergirded and founded upon an eternal hope. It is a hope that carries us in this life through all sorts of trials and humiliations and sufferings, knowing that we are united to the Lord in His humiliation and therefore also in His joy and His glory. It is the hope that kills the source of our sorrow and grief, which is our sin. That we are freed from the shackles of sin through what Jesus Christ has done in His life and through His death in order that we may be like Christ in both in our life and in our putting to death of our sin. And so as the praise that comes up, I beseech y'all to remember this, that Jesus came on Christmas Day, He came to live, and He came to live for us. And on Christmas Day, Jesus came to die, to die for us. And so as we, as we remember the words, joy to the world, let us remember that joy to, the ro- joy to the world is grounded in the truth of a man of sorrows. Let's pray. Uh, let's bring our hope to the Lord at this time, our joy to the Lord at this time, because we know that hope and joy are undergirded by our sorrow and our suffering. And so, if at this time, uh, you are undergoing trials, tribulations, sorrows, griefs, and pains of any kind. Let us bring it before the feet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who knows our humiliation, who knows our sorrow and grieving. Because he's died for it. He's lived for it. Indeed, he has come on Christmas Day for it. Let us bring it to the Lord. Let us be joyful in the gospel. Thank you.